the, the theme that I'd like to explore with you, and I usually don't say a theme, but it needs to happen for the recording. So the theme is, is actually the theme of this retreat, if, if you still remember <coughs> what it was, which is a path of, of wisdom and of love. So reflecting over the, the last 24 hours, feeling, feeling the space, reflecting about what we're doing here together. I keep coming back to, to something that I feel that we, we deeply share, you know, even though I don't really know most of you, but it's quite a clear sense of something that, that we all share, that we all have in common. And that one way of articulating that which we share is that we share some sort of questioning in our lives, that we share some sort of questioning, of inquiry. That's, that's brought us here, that's keeping us here. Sometimes it can feel like it's leading us. Sometimes it can feel like it's pushing us from behind. Yeah, but it's there as, as a thread in our lives. And it can, it can take different articulations. It can take different expressions. You know, it can be, sometimes I get this one. It's kind of like, is this as good as it gets? I sometimes get that one. I see at least a few smiles, so probably a few others know that one. You know, so to feel, you know, the smile that comes with that, and, and yet, you know, also the, the meaning, the seriousness of it, you know, it's a real question. Is this as good as it gets? Another one is, you know, how do I live? How do I live this human life fully? That questioning. Another one can be, how do I address suffering? How do I address suffering? You know, my own, another's, personal, global, you know, here, there. How do I address suffering? And I find this, this questioning, and, and it can take more forms, you know, I haven't exhausted the possibilities of, of the expressions, obviously. You know, in this questioning, there's a lot of depth. Yeah, there's a lot of depth in the questioning itself, in that movement that, you know, we sometimes don't know where, where is it coming from, you know, that movement within us that asks. So there's a knowing in there and knowing that it is possible 
to respond to these questions. It is possible to respond to this sense of questioning, not in a way that blocks it or stops it from flowing, but in a way that enriches in a creative way, in a responsive way. It's possible to live well. It's possible to respond to suffering. It's possible. Somehow we know that. It's part of what gives us the courage to ask, to question. We also know, there's also this knowing within the questioning that our habitual ways of responding to life aren't enough. You know, it's also that knowing in there that they're not enough that they don't work in every situation in the way we know it's possible for things to be. And so all these things that I said just now, and don't try and remember them, just feel, they all fall into this category of wisdom. It's all wisdom. You know, the questioning is wisdom, that movement that comes through us. That's, that's the sound of wisdom. That's the whisper of wisdom. That's the music of wisdom. That's making itself known to us. That's reminding us that it's, it's in here or it's accessible through here. So within the questioning, there's also compassion. There's also love. There's also care. Again, we can use many words for this, a feeling. What is the resonance in me with these qualities? And that compassion, that natural movement to address suffering, that wish to live life well and fully. You know, these are all expressions, manifestations of compassion, of love, of kindness, of care. Again, whichever word works for you. And so I'd really like to kind of go more into this together with you this evening. Because these areas of questioning, of looking at suffering, at dukkha, of opening to compassion, to kindness, to love, to care. They're really crucial for us. Really, really important for us. 
And I've mentioned the word dukkha, and I just like to, it's a Pali word, the language in which the, the Buddhist texts are written in. And just to kind of say what it means, often translated as suffering, but it actually covers this whole spectrum of the human experience of, you know, discomfort, unease, stress, anxiety. It covers this whole spectrum. Sometimes we, we give these examples, you know, we say it's like the, the, the classic, you know, human predicament. You know, we don't get what we want. You know, we get what we don't want. And when we finally have something that we like, we lose it, you know. And it's, you're not laughing, I think it's funny. <laughs> it's equally sad. But it's, it's our predicament, you know, it's part of, of being human. So sometimes we can just see it in that regard. You know, it's very much woven into the humanity that we are. And one of the really beautiful aspects of Dharma teachings is this emphasis, and this may sound like a big contradiction, but one of the beautiful things about Dharma teaching is this emphasis on opening to dukkha, suffering, discomfort, unease, stress. Yeah, one of the beautiful things about it. And it's very much in contrast to the way our cultures function, you know, where we, you know, when we start looking at, at it, we see how we, we, we're always fast-forwarding from discomfort to solution. You know, sometimes call it the fixing and solving mentality. And sometimes have it in relationships before someone's finished telling us what's difficult for them or painful for them. Here we are already with the advice, you know. And how does that feel to be on the receiving end of that? You know, we also, also know that. So that fast forwarding, which causes a sense of disconnection. And our culture also really prioritizes denial. You know, denial of the difficult aspects, the challenging aspects of human life. You know, we see it in the way um, we treat the elderly, for example. Yeah, a denial of aging. So let's just shut it away somewhere. And Dharma teachings tell us to do the opposite. Yeah, not to disconnect, not to deny, not to ignore, not to shut down, not to fast forward, but to actually take some time to know this human aspect, this, experience, this aspect of our human beingness get to know it, to 
actually open, open the eyes, the ears, the heart to meet what is here, to acknowledge. As one of my teachers used to say, to spend time with. He used to say to us all the time, spend time with it. And this isn't out of some masochism. Yeah. My very beloved mother. I, I, I give this example many times. <laughs> I was in Israel visiting her and uh, we spend a lot of time driving in the car from one place to the other. <laughs> so we were in the car and she said to me, you know, I really like Buddhist philosophy. It's really great. But why do they say we have to suffer? You know. And it's such a, a common misunderstanding, you know. So this emphasis on opening to and looking at the suffering isn't about masochism. It's not about suffering more. It's actually about the opposite. Yeah. It's about finding freedom within our humanness within our human predicament, which includes this. So it's actually out of love, this encouragement. Out of love. And we can understand this when we think about, you know, if we have a physical pain, you know, a cut or a muscle strain, if we ignore it, if we pretend it's not there. We're not giving it much opportunity to heal. So the same thing, opening to, looking at, accepting. And so this looking at suffering, opening to it, is a lot of wisdom, a lot of love in this process. A lot of wisdom, a lot of love in this process. It teaches us about how we operate. It teaches us how we can, I think I was mentioning it yesterday, both cultivate things, ways of being, which support us, support our well-being and our happiness. And it supports us to understand the ways in which we are contributing to suffering, our own and that of others, so that we can let go. And it also opens us to this really important aspect of our shared human experience. I keep saying that. <laughs> I'm probably going to keep saying that. That this is something we all know. You know, it doesn't matter how rich we are, successful, beautiful, young, you know, whatever it is <laughs> that seems kind of attractive to us. We all know this experience. We all know it. 
There's a beautiful story from, from the Buddha's life which really illustrates this very powerfully. And this is when the Buddha was um, already a well-known and respected teacher. And one day a woman came to see him. Her name was Kisagotami. She came to see the Buddha and she was holding the body of her dead child in her arms. She was very, very distressed. And people had told her that the Buddha was a great teacher, a great master, and that he could help her. And so she came to ask the Buddha to bring her child back to life. So what did the Buddha do? His response to her was, yes, I can help you. But I need you to go back to your village and bring me a mustard seed from a house that does not know death. A house where no one has ever died. And so she went and she knocked on door after door and asked for a mustard seed, you know, something very simple. But every house, every door she knocked on, that family had known death, it knew grief, it knew loss. Eventually she came back to the Buddha and she was ready to let her child go. She was ready to let her child go. So he had really helped her, not in the way, not exactly in the way that she was asking to be helped, but in a very deep and profound way. And one thing that I love about this story is his deep understanding of the process that she needed to go through. not about saying, oh, you know, everyone knows grief. It's actually about coming face to face with that and giving the process time, giving the process the time that is needed. So this is our shared reality that we live in. And so this, this really to emphasize this aspect of the teaching that this dukkha is inevitable. It's part of being human. We all experience it. You know, all the bodies in this hall, we're all aging, yeah? We all know sickness. 
we're all going to die. You know, if you haven't had a chance, there's a skeleton in the walking room. You know, that's, that's where we're heading. That's, that's real. What is key with all of this is our relationship to it. Key. Our relationship to it. Can we bring wisdom? Can we bring love to this reality? So through turning towards the difficult, through opening to it, through making space to it, we are forming a different relationship. And like um, like Isagotami, we have to do this at the appropriate pace for us. Yeah, so really important to say that. You know, there's some people in the hall here, there's, um, you know, this will happen to us in our lives and we're going to meet very painful, very difficult stuff. Yeah, so we have to do it in the appropriate pace and way for us. But we can build a different relationship. One that allows and accepts deeply without indulging and without identifying. Really important. Without indulging and without identifying. Doing this connects us deeply to our resources. Yeah, it's like cycles that feed themselves. Positively, we open, we make space, and more wisdom comes in, more compassion and love come in, and then we can open more. We can look more, we can feel more, and more compassion, more love, more wisdom grows. And so Interestingly enough, in these places, we can find that where we thought there is despair, where we thought we can't bear something, we actually find strength. We actually find strength in ourselves. And it's a very soft, sensitive strength. Yeah, it's not a a soft, sensitive, alive strength that connects us rather than separates us. It connects us. We feel connected rather than separate and alienated. And this takes tremendous courage. It takes the courage to be vulnerable. Yeah, strength and vulnerability. Very connected. <laughs> yeah, they're not opposites. It takes courage to be vulnerable. It takes courage to open to that which we fear, to go against these defensive mechanisms that tell us to turn away from that which we're afraid of, from that which hurts. 
And it takes courage to stand in our truth, even when we don't have all the answers. To stand in our truth, even when we don't have all the answers, even if we don't have any answers at all. But to stand in what we know is true. I want to give an example of that, which I was, um, it's happened just a few weeks ago, maybe three, not sure, three, three and a half. And just before coming here to Gaia House, I was, um, I was in Israel and Palestine. I'm involved with various um, initiatives and projects there to do with human rights and peace building. And this was, uh, I think, two days before we left. We went to a demonstration. And this demonstration took place by um, the separation barrier, which um, is a barrier that Israel has been building for about 12 years now. And this specific part of the barrier is just outside the city of Bethlehem, or (laughs) on the edge of the city of Bethlehem, against the city of Bethlehem. And when we say barrier, we're talking about a really tall concrete wall very tall concrete wall. And whenever I'm near this separation barrier, I think it's incredibly well-named in Dharma senses, separation barrier, I can feel what it, what it's built out of. You know, it's made out of fear. It's made out of enmity. Made out of this sense of other. Made out of hatred, violence. So we were we were at this demonstration, which um, was organised by a group. That is a group of of Palestinians and Israelis that work together. The name is Combatants for Peace. That's less important. The really kind of important thing is their kind of logo or slogan or what they stand for. And that is, there is another way. There is another way. That's not violent. That's not fearful. That doesn't separate. That doesn't create other And this demonstration, like other activities that I've been to with this group, it's, it was such a powerful embodiment of actually humanity and of life. Yeah, such a strong embodiment of humanity and of life and of peace. Yeah. 
And all we did was walk along, you know, a section of this wall. Calling out things like, no more killing, no more hate. But it was so powerful to feel that in the shadow of this enormous thing, in the shadow of this, something else could exist which had much more strength and much more power. We can call it the human spirit. We can call it Buddha nature. We can call it whatever we feel moved to. But so powerful. And I was watching I like to watch other people. I was watching the others. And particularly the times when two people from the organization saw each other for the first time and met, you know, Palestinian and an Israeli seeing each other. And then the hug. And that sense of the deepest kind of sisterhood, brotherhood. That's possible. That goes beyond our conditioning, goes beyond our ideas, goes beyond our education, our culture. So strong. And all this within the awfulness of the situation, yeah, this is so important. You know, not off on some, you know, holiday resort where everything's groovy. You know, but there, in the shadow of this symbol, that love, that wisdom. So it's really possible for us it's really possible for us. All men and women who've, you know, tried out violence and seen that it doesn't work. They've made that journey. And so can we in whatever it is that we need to work with and face in our lives. We can make that journey. So doing this isn't easy. It's really possible. It's really possible. Which doesn't mean that it's easy. It doesn't mean that it's easy. How do we open? How do we turn towards what is difficult and painful without being overwhelmed? Without feeling depleted? How do we do that? So I'd like to offer a really simple practice. Which I've come across really recently. And I find really useful. It's a practice that comes from um, 
the American teacher in our tradition, um, Joseph Goldstein, one of the senior teachers. And actually, on the November Solitary Retreat that just ended, someone played a talk of his. And I'm so grateful to that person <laughs> because this practice was there. And then I kind of I tried it out. And I loved it. And the practice is called Relaxing the Heart. It's called Relaxing the Heart. And so this practice is for any time when we feel our being, our heart, contract. It can be when we're facing something painful or difficult. It can be when we're experiencing fear or aversion. It can be when we're um, experiencing desire, you know, attraction to something, a pull towards something. And so in the space of mindfulness, of awareness that we're cultivating here, we can actually feel this happening. You know, it's something that happens to us all the time, but here we can actually feel this happening. So we notice, and I was trying to kind of think of ways to, to make it more accessible. You know, it can really feel like a tightening of the heart or the being. Sometimes we can feel it as a, you know, the whole body actually kind of closes down a bit or closes around something or holds on to something, if it's something we want, or we do this. You know, all of these are forms of contraction, getting small around something. And so we can notice in awareness that this is going on. And then we feel in the body. We feel in the body. You know, what's going on? How does this actually feel? How is this actually manifesting? The ways I just showed in other ways. You know, sometimes we might find ourselves so clenched up. You know? So how is this going on? How is this happening? And then we bring in the intention to relax the heart into the space of awareness. To relax the heart into the space of awareness. And you have to try this a little bit. (laughs) I'm not going to be able to, I think, quite get the experience to you just by speaking about it. But feeling the contraction and then relaxing the heart into the space of awareness. That awareness which is actually bigger than the contraction. Yeah? And it includes both our reaction, our contraction, and that which, is, which we're um, reacting to, that which is triggering. Does that make sense? Tell me if it doesn't. And as we relax the heart, we relax the heart into the space of awareness, a shift can happen. A shift can happen. And that sense of tightness, of separateness, of alienation that we may be having can be transformed. It can change. And that happens on a spectrum, you know. It can just be that it's less, you know, it's not as contracted as it was. 
And sometimes it can go all the way into the complete opposite. So from contraction, we find spaciousness. You know, from feeling very closed, we feel open. We find openness. So the meditation practice, the community, the silence, all of this, all the conditions that we have here, they really support this process. They really support this unfolding for us. You know, we live in difficult times. You know, these, these aren't easy times to be alive. Not that I remember any previous lives, so I can't really compare. But these certainly aren't easy times to be alive. You know, the, the forces of, of greed, of enmity and hatred, of ignorance and delusion, they're strong. They're strong in our societies. They're strong in our cultures. And they affect us. You know, they affect our hearts. It's part of why we come here, to, to, to find refuge. And so how do we respond? How do we respond to these forces that are in the world, including within us? You know, including, really important not to make an other here. Including within us. How do we respond? One way is to listen, to listen, to listen to the pain, to listen to the difficulty, to listen to that which we don't like or don't want, to listen. Because as that listening deepens, becomes more full, then we can also hear more clearly, know more clearly the wisdom and the love that are here in all of us, in all of us. And I was Reflecting on this just before coming in the hall, I was remembering a story from a leprosy community that I spend time in every year. And this place was founded um, in the very early 50s. So it's been, it's been around for a long time. And the name of this community is Anandwan, which Ananda is bliss or joy, and one is forest. So it literally means forest of joy or forest of bliss. And one time the founder of the community, uh, who's passed away since, uh, he told us um, the story of how the name came about. And I wanna share that because it's a, for me a real example of this deep listening that we're capable of. 
And so he founded the community with um, his wife, their two young sons who were under two years old, and six leprosy patients at a time when they were just having the first treatments for leprosy. They were very ostracized in their society, and they'd gotten some... um, some kind of abandoned land from the government. And they went there in the month of June, which is the hottest month of the year. It's about 48 degrees Celsius in that area in the summer. And so they went there um, and to, to start up the community. And, you know, they were doing everything by hand, digging wells and building some shelter and cooking. And he decided to let the the leprosy patients choose the name for the place. And so he asked them, you know, what would you like to call it? And it didn't take them long to come up with this name, Anandwan. And Baba Amte, the the founder, when when he told us this story, he said, you know, I looked around and there were no trees. (laughs) It was you know, baking, baking hot and hard, hard work. And all around us, people were afraid of us. They didn't want anything to do with us. And I thought to myself, you know, kind of what forest are they talking about? And what joy? But then I listened. And I felt that, you know, these people had nothing. They had nothing. And if this is what they wanted to call the place, you know, let's call it that. And 50 years later, when we were having this conversation, you know, he looked around and he said, and they were absolutely right. 5,000 people living together a forest that was planted by people who are considered disabled and unworthy. You know, a vibrant community. And now the people in the surrounding areas, they come there on Sundays to have picnics because it's the most beautiful place around and peaceful. So, you know, we listen. Sometimes it takes time. It takes decades. But it's there. We allow the pain, then we also allow the joy. We create a forest where there was desert. So yeah, as we practice here together, as we cultivate presence and our capacity to open to life in all its colors, in all its shades, in all its flavors, just remembering that questioning, that movement within us. Trusting in that. 
remembering that nothing is permanent or fixed. Everything changes. Everything changes. Remembering our shared humanity and beyond humanity. Yeah. We're all in this life together. All in this life together. And how we live and what we do matters. How we live and what we do matters. Starting with our next breath. Yeah, it's that immediate. That close. So let's have a a quiet moment or few moments together just to bring this to a close. So may we continue to open to the life that flows through us with its beauty and its sorrow. May we feel the wisdom and the love that are within us, around us accessible to us. And may we practice in a way that brings benefit and ease to all beings everywhere, including ourselves. So thank you deeply for your presence and your listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
slash donate.